I'm Sean Hogan and this is The Good Guys Podcast. In this episode, former National Party leader Todd Muller details the struggles of being thrust into the toughest job in politics. Well, I think that um, famous phrase of trying to get your mouth over a water hydrant is pretty accurate. That pressure taking its toll almost immediately. It's really hideous, actually, because... Um, your mind is thinking all the time, those voices in your head, and they are they are loud and they are painful. And why he needed permission to step down. In the crying and the release was also grace and relief and love, and that is extremely healing. We delve into how that healing road is long, and what's next for someone for who politics was all he ever dreamed of. Hey guys, just a quick note from me. I and my guests are not doctors or mental health professionals unless stated otherwise. They have lived experience and are simply sharing what has worked for them to get through tough times. But I'm also going to put some numbers of helplines and websites in the show notes of this episode. So if these topics do raise anything for you that you want to talk to someone about, then you can get the help that you deserve. And now, let's get into it. Well, Todd Buller, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Not a problem. Great to be here, Sean, actually. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks. Um, so, you are, as most people know, a politician. You are the MP for, for Bay of Plenty, and you've had, uh, I guess, almost seven years now in, in politics. I want to start with what, what drew you to politics in the first place? Look, I think... Um, it would really have to be my grandfather. Um, he was a mayor of a little town in the North Island called Tiaraha, uh, under the foot of a beautiful mountain. And um, I was really close to both my grandparents. And uh, he was mayor for a long, long time. And um, when I was growing up, he had finished it. Uh, but he was still known by everybody in the community and hugely respected by everyone in the community. And I guess he imparted a, um, for me a, a value of community service. Uh, he wasn't a wealthy man uh, and neither was uh, his wife, Eileen Skidmore, um, but um, they, they just had a remarkable um, partnership, a remarkable marriage and a remarkable impact on their community. And it was um, very service orientated. Uh, it didn't seek accolades uh, or notoriety. Um, the antithesis, actually, of sort of today's uh, um, Facebook and Instagram society. And I just, I had a huge amount of time for them both, and they really did touch me quite deeply. And I could see as they got older um, that their life of service had actually given their uh, life some uh, meaning. Uh, and I sort of deep down decided that I would like to do something similar uh, and had always uh, loved American politics uh, and thought it would be great if I could one day be a politician in New Zealand. Uh, and uh, always had that from probably about the age of 13, Sean, as something that I'd like to do, which in some case, in some ways is a little bit weird. Uh, most people listening wouldn't have had that as a career choice at 13, but, um, you know, I did. And so it was through my life, everything was sort of, um, building to the moment where um, hopefully one day I'd be a politician. Yeah, well, you made it happen. So determination at that age, I guess, got you got you to where you needed to be. You had a clear goal and you were orientated towards it. You entered Parliament at, at uh, in 2014. Um, as you entered, what was then Todd Muller's dr big dream? Was it to emulate your, your grandfather? Um, a great question. I Actually, I can remember walking in it's a bit of a story. I walked in because you have this induction, right, where you get an mm. welcomed as new MPs uh, and shown how Parliament works. And I'd had some insight to that because I'd worked for Jim Bolger and his Prime Minister. Uh, but, you know, that had been 20-something years earlier and, and certainly I'd changed and the institution had changed somewhat. And I can remember walking in and I happened to be standing beside another newbie by the name of James Shaw. Uh, and we both looked at each other. And we had this moment where our eyes sort of uh, connected and we both sort of thought, what the hell are we doing here? What, why have we chosen this <laughs> as opposed to corporate comfort? Because he was PwC, I'd been with Fonterra, uh, and it was like, really? Uh, <laughs> this, this is 
this sort of it felt a very much like boarding school you know there were the rules you had to stand here you couldn't speak until you you know all these sort of rules which is um quite different when you're used to sitting around an executive table in Fonterra uh and so you know I I was you know struck by the fact that I was finally there uh but in terms of ambition I had always hoped that you know if I could be sitting around the top table of a future national government um that would do me fine and uh was certainly always where I thought that I would probably uh end up being could you shed some light on what sort of environment a political caucus is? You know, many people from the outside might might be quite cynical potentially of what it what it looks like. Was it was it what you thought it would be? Well, I think um, the caucus itself uh, is a mixture of um, multi decades of tradition handed down by each parliament and therefore each rep- group of representatives of the national party. Um, and so you uh, you are quite, in some ways, bound by that history, partly because the National Party is a set of values that you seek to uh, influence public policy when you get your chance to be government. You have people in the caucus room whose memory goes back two, three decades. Um, so you have people there 30 years and people there three months, right? Uh, and then you've got... Um, Everyone has ambition in as much as wanting their particular talents to be recognised by the leader, um, their colleagues, the media and the wider community. And any politician who denies that isn't telling you the truth. Uh, and so you're, you're all in this room and you're one part collegial group of people seeking to promote national party values and one part fierce competitors, uh, because at a level there is an easy default for a number of politicians to get to that it that it's a zero-sum game that if somehow you are capturing the uh, public's imagination with your spokesmanship or your portfolio somehow you're clouding or crowding me out to be the best I can be so it's quite an unusual environment very competitive uh completely unlike any national any uh, Zespri, Fonterra or Apita places that I'd had senior leadership roles in, executive or leadership team meetings, completely different. When we're in government, what uh, John Key and Bill English said um, was it, the gospel, if you like. And that, of course, becomes quite different when you're in opposition, when you're trying to um, rediscover, um, you know, the essence of what national needs to be to regain the uh, treasury benches. It's, it, there's very much a hierarchy, right? And you came in as a as a what they call a backbencher when you started. It, how intimidating is that environment? And are you, as you said in that explanation of what caucus is like, are you just trying to get noticed? What's what's the day to day? Yeah, I mean, you. I think uh, um, again, you you come in um, a lot. Of the timing of when you come in, I think, is uh, significant. I mean, clearly the five national MPs who came in last October, November, have a very different experience being part of a chastened group of 33 than my experience in 2014 um, uh, as part of John Key's remarkable third election victory where we almost got uh, you know, 60 MPs <coughs> excuse me, out of 120. So very different context. But, if, but you're right, it's very hierarchical. You start at the bottom, regardless of your um, previous experience outside politics. Uh, in fact, the lowest of the roles is caucus minute taker. And I took that. I put my hand up to do that when I went into caucus. Uh, and uh, John Key did in 2002. So, you know, you start at the bottom and uh, hopefully through application and demonstration that you've got the skills to be a, an effective politician, uh, you uh, climb the ladder. Uh, but of course, being an opposition politician, the skills required to be noticed and gain effect are somewhat different to the skills required if you're a you know, cabinet minister. So um, it, context is everything. First term, we were government. Second term and the second term uh, was opposition. And so quite different experiences. So in your role as as minute taker, and you obviously progressed a bit a bit further up from there. What was 
what how do you think you performed in in that sort of role i guess more more at the uh, the back of the party how, how were you how did you believe that you were performing i think uh, pretty well um again you know when you talk of the mix of people that come in uh, at each election um i was known within the party i joined the party in uh, the late 80s i uh, went to my first national conference in 1989 I think I've missed two in the subsequent, uh, you know, 30 years. Uh, and, um, you know, I have sort of grown up in the National Party and have that huge legacy, if you like, within the party. Um, and not, not necessarily other people don't have that, right? So you have those who joined in the last year or two. And I had this sort of 30-year arc of involvement from um, Jim Bolger's private office uh, all the way through and so for me it was a bit different because I had that sort of party history but for saying that you know still when you start at the bottom in a political context you do have to learn the ropes again and um, Holyoke um, once said uh, was quoted as saying that you know for the first term you just breathe through your nose and watch uh, and a, a number of my colleagues who were around at the time of 2002 to 05 noted that John Key, when he started, would just spend all his time, you know, in um, the chamber, watching what was going on, asking questions, sort of building his own understanding of how the system worked, because it was so different to anything that he had encountered before. And your experience was similar? You said before, you know, you, you it was like nothing you'd seen at Zespri or, or Fonterra. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think elements of, of, the institution I was familiar with because I'd been three years with Jim Bolger, the sort of behind the scenes politics, the hierarchy, um, the, the, the value that was put on time as opposed to talent, um, those were things that were different to the corporate world, where if you were seen as someone who had the capacity, you would be quickly promoted. Uh, that was less common in politics, regardless of party, actually, National Labour or anyone. Uh, you were sort of expected to do your time and to move through, um, you know, at a, at a sort of more measured pace than perhaps what is what you'd expect in a corporate world. Right, but things can move quickly, right? And so okay. you got you were re-elected, re-elected in 2017 again and um, into an opposition government, and, um, unfortunately for the National Party, I, I guess. But then, and there's a lot of water that goes under the bridge before then, you ran for the leadership in 2020 ahead of the election. Um, what, and I, I don't want to get into what happened and what didn't happen in the lead up to that, but when you became a leader... What was that transition like from where you had been, which was a relative unknown and in, in, in outside of political circles, yeah. to being the front of this this huge party? Yeah, look, um, I think it was an adjustment, frankly, that I found difficult. Um, and I think looking back, uh, putting aside the mental health uh, challenges that overwhelmed those 50 days that we'll touch on shortly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, there, there, there is a significant, um, you know, leader of the opposition is the hardest job in politics, as is well uh, quoted. Uh, being Becoming the leader 100 days out from an election uh, is, uh, you know, something else again, because the pace in which things and events happen around you and the importance of how you react to those events is different when you're 100 days from an election than if you're two and a half years from an election. Mm-hmm. No one's really seeing it through the lens of uh, an impending political choice. But when you take over 100 days out, uh, you know that, that critique of your uh, positioning, your messaging, your thinking, your priorities uh, is, you know, understandably, uh, looking back, you know, quite uh, acute. And I think you know, being honest, I wasn't prepared for the level of, um, uh, you know, critique that would come. Mm. Uh, And, you know, that I have to live with that, you know, you bring your best game uh, to it. Uh, You know, I will always feel disappointed that I couldn't bring my best game to it because of the mental health uh, challenges that I was working through. 
uh, but you can't undo it. You know, you mm. can you can be open and honest with people that that's what happened and how you tried to navigate your way through it. Uh, but you know, you can't you can't spin your way out of the fact that actually, nor should you try, that you had a go and um, actually there are elements of the job that uh, you found particularly difficult. Yeah, and and. In terms of the job and what it actually entails, when you make that transition into leader, is suddenly everybody just looking at you for advice of where to go? Or what is the job like, I guess, for, to put it into context for people who can't see inside those office doors? Well, I think that um, famous phrase of trying to get your mouth over a water hydrant is pretty accurate. Um, <laughs> you know, things just come at you, events, issues, expected uh, perspectives, reaction uh, comes at you uh, at an incredible pace. Uh, and like I say, if you had taken over just after an election, perhaps an election loss, and you and the media would give you time to get your feet under the desk, to get all your people lined up, uh, to begin a process of introspection, why did we lose? What should our policy priorities be for the next uh, three years? All of that, of course, was not available uh, when you take over 100 days out. And, you know, we had to have another look at how the campaign had been put together, um, you know, hold a view of what needed to be needed to be changed, and our view significant components of it needed to be. Uh, and so you were really running um, uh, really at, to stand still, or as Nikki Kay put it at the time, you were sort of building the plane while you were flying at 45,000 feet, which is not ideal, uh, but that's the reality, you know, when you take over. Uh, most, if not all, of the key people that were under the Bridges-Bennett regime, they leave. Uh, and so you've got to build your capability in an environment where you don't have any time, uh, essentially, to do it because you're 100 days out from the election and tomorrow you're 99 days out and the next day it's 98. And so, you know, you, you're under the pump uh, from the moment uh, you take over. Uh, but, you know, that's, that comes with the territory. Mm, and you touched on it just before then, but how much did you pay attention to the what is quite an intensive media attention and pretty brutal examination of you and every decision you make from the moment you step into that role? Yeah, that's a great question. I didn't watch the news. Sorry, Sean. I didn't critique from the Hawks Bay. But um, look, the... You obviously have people around you that are essentially trying to mediate um, uh, the news, that the, the gallery's perspective uh, to you to try and you know get your head assist you and get getting your head around how to frame a, an appropriate uh, response, uh, and equally working for you to try and get the message out to, uh, to the gallery. But all of this is happening at you know just remarkable pace, uh, and you are, you know caught in having to, you know, defend certain positions, um, statements you might have said yesterday or not said yesterday or somebody else said yesterday. Uh, and like I say, that doesn't happen with the pace um, uh, when you're two and a half years out from the election. When you're mm -hmm. two and a half months out from an election, it is, you know, it is full noise. But I didn't sit every night and watch the media critique uh, um, you know, of me. You know, some days were good, some days were bad, some days were, you know, pretty bad. Uh, but you just get on. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, I'm sure Judith will be doing the same thing. You got to get up every day and uh, swing your bat and, and, you know, bring your best foot forward. With an election and the way New Zealand works in its two main parties at the moment, it is in essence a bit of a popularity contest. Every person you interact with could potentially dictate whether you become prime minister or not. Does that impact your mindset or how self-conscious do you become in that role or did you? Yeah, another good question. The best parts of the uh, very limited time I had in the role was when I was out of Wellington and out in the communities, including actually those couple of days where I was in the Hawke's Bay, um, because you are out of that Wellington bubble and you are connecting with New Zealanders going about their business and their lives and seeking, um, you know, a national government often, although, you know, you often, you meet people from all sorts of uh, walks of life, but I absolutely loved being out and about listening to people, you know, reflecting with them where we thought that the 
current Ardern government was at fault, what we could do differently. Uh, I got a lot of energy from that, actually. Um, I found it harder to deal with the um, constant Wellington scrutiny where you felt like every single thing you said or didn't say was, you know, um, poured under the microscope. Now, you know, I look back on that and realise that, you know, part of the challenge of navigating those times was because I was struggling uh, mentally. And, you know, if I hadn't have been, then maybe um, uh, I suspect it would have looked quite different. But the reality was that I was struggling. And so therefore, you know, you do the best you can under the, under, you know, the intense pressure uh, of, you know, um, you know, internal mental health challenges. Did you, when you talk about struggling with that Wellington bubble, do you think that you changed at all to try and appease that? Do you think you changed who you were? Yeah, I think what um, happens, and certainly it happened to me, is over time you start losing um, self-confidence, uh, a lack of, you know, what you would think would be the appropriate answer to a particular question uh, or a scenario, suddenly you second guess yourself. You know, you listen to other voices who suggest that you should approach it in a different way. Uh, And I think the challenge, and certainly was a challenge for me, was that over time created almost a paralysis uh, in me in terms of uh, self-doubt Uh, and not being able to be clear-minded around the priorities that I thought needed to be taken. And, you know, that is a a challenge to reflect back on because that's not how I behaved when I was under pressure in Fonterra or under pressure in Apida and under pressure in Zespri. But then when I was in those roles, when the pressure came on, I was not suffering from the mental health challenges that I was, um, you know, over the last uh, year or so and certainly through that period. So that that materially amplified the challenge of um, losing confidence in your own judgment. Uh, and when you start doing that at any time, but particularly in a political environment, I think it becomes quite telling. How quickly do you think you lost that confidence? Well, um, it, of course, is integrated with the mental health challenges, which started, you know, four or five days in. Uh, But in terms of uh, confidence, I would say that it just slowly eroded. Um, I mean, I was only in the job for a few weeks, right? Um, 50 something days, but um, it was, you know, it, it just became harder and harder and harder to have, to, to, to get the, the space, the mental space to be able to reflect on the complex tactical decision that sat in front of me and how I would best respond to it uh, verbally uh, because there was so much pressure and noise and, and um, you know, other challenges going on in my head at the same time. Could you tell us about that initial presentation of, of anxiety and those anxiety attacks that you started to have? Yeah, um, they were as early as five days in. Um, uh, I got elected... Um, on the Friday, and I was coming back from Auckland, from Wellington via Auckland, because we're still COVID, so I had to drive everywhere, um, no flights to Tauranga. So we had to drive back to from Auckland to uh, Tauranga, and I had had a really good conversation with John Key, really helpful, uh, I think Bill English as well, and then just suddenly out of the blue, I just had this um, intense wave of anxiety, which... Uh, sort of felt like it was washing over me, like you're caught in the caught in a wave, uh, and um, I started sweating. Um, I felt deeply nauseous. Um, I have short shortage of breath, and I was thinking, "What is going on here?" And I was talking to myself and trying to get myself to grip it up, right, mm-hmm. saying, "Come on, mate, just breathe." And so um, I did, and after a period of time, I sort of got reasonably in control of it. I was wondering what the driver must have thought, looking in the rear of the mirror, this guy talking to himself, trying to do deep breaths. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, I was just de- sort of grasping at anything to try and regain control, and I arrived at home and just collapsed into Michelle's arms and bored my eyes out for a good half an hour, um, and then hopped into bed and slept soundly for like 10 hours, Woke up the next morning a little bit washed out, but fine. And away I went. 
Uh, and then two days later, the same thing happened again. Uh, and the frequency and the intensity of those um, uh, panic attacks just got worse and worse and worse. Uh, and, you know, there were times towards the end where I, looking back, I find it remarkable that I managed to get speeches out, frankly, because of what was going on in my head at the time. Mm. In terms of the yeah the performance of yourself and what happened because of that anxiety, what subsequently started to happen to you physically and mentally as those anxiety attacks worsened? Well, I certainly lost. Um, you know, I, I would still eat, but um, I think I lost close to you know eight kilos in six weeks or something. Um, it just it just the weight just fell off me. Um, the um, in terms of the sort of mental um, pressure, I mean, you 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 feel it. It impacts you, and you have this sort of desperate um, pain inside you that you're trying to get on top of. Uh, you get you you get on top of it, uh, and then you have a period of time where you think you're okay, and then it hits again. Um, it was really bad at night. I would have. Uh, I was really struggling with sleep. I was having three, two to three hours sleep and waking up and it didn't matter what I did, yoga, calm apps, deep breathing, um, nothing would help. Um, so that was when I started having some medication to try and assist not only in the sleep, but also the, the severity of the anxiety attacks to try and reduce them down. Um, but because the frequency of them started to um, increase, not only at nighttime, but during the day, um, oh, my God, it was a battle. Like, um, you know, I would be alone in my office and it would hit and it would just, you know, you'd be dry reaching and I'd be sweating. And it's it's and for those of you of your you know audience who have been through this, um, it's a dreadful, dreadful um, um, sort of pain that you have and you're desperately wrestling with yourself trying to get back on top of it uh and of course your mind is saying well you this is all you've ever wanted todd you know when you were a young fella you hoped to be a prime minister you hope now you're the leader of the opposition you're one election away from achieving your dream you're the leader of the national party pull yourself together uh and so you've got this in one one ear saying come on mate but you can't, and you and you can feel it slipping away. Um, it's very, very hard on your uh, partner. In my case, my wife Michelle. Uh, she could see me falling apart. Uh, I often would be at my worst when I'd come home for the one or two days a week, or one day a week, because that was where I could completely let go. And you know, I've said before, I've, I felt she spent those seven weeks desperately trying to keep the emotional scaffolding up around me, but could see me slipping. And I think it's part of the story that doesn't often get enough um, reflection on is the impact on the partners who aren't suffering from the mental health um, issue in an acute sense, but have to live it with their partner. It's, it's dreadfully stressful for them as well, because you don't know and what to do. Mm. And those obviously warning signs came quite early and and were prevalent throughout those those fifty days. Was there any uh, inclination, or did you have any feelings of throwing it at the towel in earlier, or was that voice in your head that was telling you this was all you ever wanted keeping you going? Yeah, a bit of that. Um, I had about ten days, and I needed to have some. Uh, skin cancer stuff taken off my head and I can remember when the surgeon came out and said it's good news uh, it's not malignant it's not serious you know you'll only need a handful of days off I had this huge um, deflation as opposed to elation and I thought what is going on because that is a very very unusual reaction when you get told that actually, you know, you're healthier than you perhaps expected to be when you go and have a chat to someone with skin cancer. And so I can remember sitting there thinking, why am I feeling like this? Um, but most of the time I, I had the voice saying, you've just got to keep going. You've got to keep going. You can't give up uh, because giving up, um, in my mind, was failure, right? And hugely public failure. 
uh, and public failure that you would have to um, wear as part of your lived experience for the rest of your life. So you can imagine there was intense debates in my head as to what the right thing should be. Um, but as those who have been this journey before me uh, know that actually you get to a point where um, you don't have a choice. And certainly by the end, I didn't have a choice but to step away. Yeah, what was the, I guess in a way, you could probably describe it as a bit of table tennis going on in your head. Yeah. What was that like? What are the voices like in your head? What are they telling you? Well, it's it's um, it's really hideous actually because um, your mind is thinking all the time. You are, you know, um, playing out scenarios in a pretty brutal and um, um, overt way in your head. You know, what if this happens? What if that happens? Um, all the while, you have this intense pressure on your head, or I did, uh, and you're battling with nauseousness and a lack of sleep uh, and sweating. And, you know, it's a, it is. Um, and even when you, you manage to sort of calm some of the physiological reactions down, you still have those um, those voices um, in your head, and they are they are loud, and they are painful. You know, it's not a it's not a, a pleasant Sunday afternoon conversation over a beer. These are you know these are shrieking conversations, harsh conversations, and um, yeah, it's bloody hard. Mm. I mean, ultimately, it 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 was the undoing of of your your position as as the national party leader what was the straw that broke the camel's back what what made you go this is enough well i just physically um couldn't do it anymore i on the monday morning i got up with michelle and our youngest and went for a walk uh and then had breakfast which i couldn't really eat we went for a walk uh and then after that, I was to have a shower and pick up by a car and have a whole day of things. Uh, and I, it was so bad, I could really struggle to put one foot after the other. Uh, and whilst I was never suicidal, there was a time when I, when I got to the top of these very long stairs and I thought that if I just slipped on these stairs, then the pain would stop. Maybe for a week, maybe for two weeks. And... You know, I was in a very, very bad way. And um, I just managed to get back um, to the house, which is a remarkable thing to even say. What do you mean you just managed to get back to the house? Mm. Well, when you're in that um, scenario, you know, even the effort of taking one step after the other was so challenging by the end because of what was going on in my head. Um, and, you know, that's why it's so important for people when they, if they get to that stage that they reach out. Now I did, um, um, my wife facilitated that because I just said, I just can't. I, so I arrived back, went, just managed to get up to stairs and just collapsed onto a bed. Um, she was extremely worried. She got uh, a friend on the phone. He had what he took one look at me and drove up uh, to see me and sort of helped me through the rest of the day. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was, it was terrible, mm. but it's important, you know, when you, when, you know, when you reach out like that and, um, and just having someone to be there and, you know, listen and assist you to navigate it was, uh, was remarkable. And he said, he said, you know, when he looked at me, he said, look, you can walk away from the fire. You know, you'll still be loved by your kids. You'll still be loved by your wife. They'll, that's what counts here. Um, and, you know, they want you to be healthy again. You can walk away from it. And he and Michelle gave me permission to walk away, uh, which I couldn't give myself, interestingly. I, I needed them. Looking back now, uh, Sean, I needed their, at that point in time, I needed their permission to walk away. 
I can almost hear the relief in your voice when you say that you reached out for help, that you managed to get some help. How much of a relief was it when you finally were content with the idea of 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 walking away? I'm not sure content's the right word. Um, I walked away and was given the permission to and said, and my chief of staff flew up to Wellington to see me and reached the same conclusion. Once that had been agreed and communicated that night to a couple of my senior people, that's when the the relief um and it is hard to it is hard to put into words because what the relief was was being is was absence of pain for the first time in a number of weeks and that absence of pain uh and the tears with my family made all the sorts of scenarios of what that will mean in terms of your legacy and you're the failure that was only 53 days and all that sort of stuff, it made that just disappear, actually, because what counted was that I was okay, that I was with my wife and my kids, uh, and my friend was right. They still loved me, and, you know, tomorrow was another day. But it's, you know, I was so fearful that, if I had, you know, I, because I, you know, I think what happens is you, you're so tight. Maybe this is a guy thing, but you're so <laughs> tight that you fear that if you let the dam just have just a tiny little breach, then the whole thing's going to explode and completely overwhelm you. Um, and I was pretty fearful of that. But actually, in the crying and the release was also grace and relief and love and that is extremely healing uh and uh but you've you know you you got to take the step mm. let's talk about the healing side of things yeah <laughs> you took you took some time off how did you use that time what did you do to get yourself well again well it is an ongoing process um that's the other thing that I've learned through this is the absence of pain isn't the same thing as being fully healed. Uh, and time is something that, you know, is assists and you just take over time. You do get stronger. You, you get able to talk about it, uh, have some perspective around it. And, and that's, that's useful, but it's not a flicking of the switch thing. Sean. You know, it wasn't, it, it took time to get to that point. And it takes time to get back out because your mind is a is a is a masterfully brutal thing and can play games with you, uh, and if you let it, can take you down unhealthy paths of what ifs and you know if only I'd and all that sort of stuff, which is you know a human thing, but not hugely helpful. Um, to answer your question in terms of you know schematically, the first thing I did was sleep. I slept for days uh and then and then lots of walking uh yoga and just healing uh in terms of just taking time for myself and what i found fascinating was i was told look this will take a lot out of you and i listened to this and thought oh yeah i'm you know i I've, i'm sure wow. i don't feel this is like a week later i feel a whole lot better i don't feel the pain anymore i'm sure i'm fine but even going back to door knocking and beginning the process, I found it would, I would do just two or three hours of work and feel absolutely exhausted. Um, and then, of course, you know, you go through the rest of the year, you win, or not win, you win the seat, but get thumped in the election. I found going back down to Wellington and then particularly going back down this year at the start of this year, extremely hard. Um, and, you know, so I, I thought going back to Wellington in October or November would be the hardest. That was easier than going back in February uh, because I'd healed a bit more, had a bit of distance, go back down there and and suddenly all the sort of triggers of, you know, seeing the stand up with the leader, walking past the office that was yours, sitting in a seat three rows back from what was yours, all that sort of stuff. And you think, actually, you know, this is a longer journey of recovery than, mm. um, than perhaps initially I thought. 
do you have certain things that you do or um, certain schematic, I guess, things you do that, that help those situations? Because you are returning to a place of work where things will be very triggering, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's as simple for me as making sure that I go out and do a walk uh, because I find getting out in the Wellington wind uh, you know, um, be it up Mount Vic or, you know, behind Parliament there, um, botanical gardens all around there. I find that hugely grounding, right? And and you get out of it, you realise, you know, there are a whole lot of other people in the world, uh, a whole lot of other people in Wellington, everyone's doing their thing. And you realise that actually, you know, everyone's just trying to do their best uh, and just just relax, Todd, you've got this. And um, uh, that is a huge help. I do a bit of yoga. I'm not the world, I'm very poor at it, but <laughs> just the idea of breathing and stretching, actually, assisting the mind to slow down is, I think, uh, really helpful. Um, because, you know, when I first did yoga, uh, and I still struggle to do it regularly, but when I first did it, I would find I, my mind was so impatient. It's like, I, like I was sitting there trying to stretch, but my mind was saying, "What are you doing? This is what? What are we doing? Just stretching and laying here for? Just stuff <laughs> be done." Uh, and actually, I've realised that just breathing and um, stretching and reflecting quietly is a bloody good tonic. Mm. Have you managed to figure out, I guess, and you, you don't have to share it if you don't want to, but what potentially caused you to be so anxious or what triggered the anxiety in you? No, I, th I think um, that's probably still a journey of discovery. I think, um, and it's very, very difficult to be clear on it for me because, you know, Sometimes I can look at it and say, well, was it because the job was brutal and frantic and frenetic? Was, you know, to what extent was that the contributor uh, to it? Um, or clearly it had to be a contributor to some extent. Um, was the decisions that I made whilst being the leader, some good, some bad, did they trigger it contribute to it well almost certainly to some extent that would have been an amplifier was the loss of my father three years ago uh suddenly and my you know honestly inability to process that in a deep um and um you know um positive way um was that a contributor almost certainly and what i what i find is that it'll be my how I make sense of it, Sean, is it is likely to have been all of the above and maybe some things that I haven't yet reflected on uh, as opposed to a single thing. Uh, and of course, you can't undo it. You can't, you know, you can't say, well, you know, I'll have another go. <laughs> you know, it's you had a go, it didn't work, uh, and you now have to just make peace with it. Mm. Uh, but making peace with it is is an ongoing process there are days where i'm very at peace with it and there are times where i'm less at peace with it but over time i'm becoming more at peace with it and do do you i guess are you able now once now that you've potentially got some clear air and such to acknowledge the fact that something that you really wanted for a long time you know we we talked earlier about the fact you wanted to be in that position at the age of 13 did you <laughs> have you come to terms with the fact that something you really wanted actually quite like it hurt you? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, I think it's of course been doubly amplified by the, um, you know, the decision um, to no longer be a politician after the next election and the, you know, reasonably um, challenging elements of what caused that. Um, and so, you know, you're now at a scenario that, you know, you wanted to be the leader uh, and you wanted to be a senior minister. And now both those are off the table uh, and you have to come to terms with that. 
uh, and make peace with it and reflect on what are you going to do for the next you know, 15, 20 years of productive life that sits in front of you. Uh, that is both daunting and exciting in equal measure because uh, in some ways, Sean, and actually in many ways, for the last um, 40 years, I have had politician and prime minister as the North Star that I sort of um, anchored my career around. Uh, now that's no longer there. So what is the next North Star? Where do you... Where can I add um, value to a community uh, or an organization or a business or all of the above that works for me? And so I'm going through that process. And, you know, that's that has its own set of um, you know challenges. And so how will you then reflect on this time in politics and your career, which has spanned seven years inside those those halls of Wellington? Well, I think you um, reflect on the little things that you have been able to do to assist uh, individuals and families in your community. Uh, and my office team over the three terms have done remarkable work for people and have assisted a lot of locals um, in a way that has been quite profound for them personally. And that that is remains, the, I guess, the highlight in terms of being down in Wellington you know, those seven years I have been on, um, you know, education, social services um, committees as a government backbencher. I have chaired foreign affairs, defence and trade. I've been to Iraq. I've been to two UN, uh, two uh, conventions in the United States. Uh, I've been climate change spokesman, negotiated zero carbon bill with James Shaw, AG, um, uh, and the leader of the National Party. So, you know, it hasn't all panned out exactly as I would have, uh, have wanted, but, you know, I've packed it in there. Uh, and, you know, for that, I'm eternally grateful, you know, because um, it certainly has been seven years, as I say, packed in with a fair amount uh, uh, of experiences, which, I, which I'd never, you know, never not want to have had. So now you want to build that. And look, we all are some of our experiences, aren't we? And it's, do you allow those experiences, good and bad, to, you know, do you do you allow the bad experiences to end up defining you or are they just part of what makes you who you are, you know, hopefully a compelling and New Zealander who's got a contribution to make? Mm. And so you talk about your, your next, I guess, North Star. How much does your experience with your mental health shape that next step? Yeah, I think... Um, I'm still reflecting on that because um, I am not um, an expert. I am someone who has had a very public uh, mental breakdown and have decided with Michelle and I have decided that I will be public about the experience. So when asked like yourself, I'm prepared to be open about it because I think I genuinely think that sharing it uh, does help. And, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of emails and texts and messages, Facebook comments that I've had over the last year is a testament to that. So, but I am conscious that it is just my lived experience and I don't have any particular insights to this than you would, right? Mm. I've not studied it. I'm not an expert. Um, and, you know, leadership and mental health, I think, rightly sits with them. But you know, if my voice can assist people in saying, actually, I, I hear some of my journey in what I've just said, uh, then that's, you know, that's that's useful. And, you know, I have a huge amount of time for John Kerwin, um, you know, Mike King and his a different way of um, highlighting mental health uh, challenges. You know, those, those are the guys that have carved the way that makes it, um, possible in many respects for me to be as open about it as I am because you know you go back 10 years uh, Sean a uh, politician admitting they've had a mental breakdown that would have been that would have been the end of them uh, you, you know not only politically but professionally do you think that uh, politics treats mental well-being as it should I think they I think individuals 
um, have and do, I think. Um, but as a sort of, as a career, I don't think it deals with it very well at all. Um, mm. But that is not a criticism of the politicians uh, or the journalists. It's just, it is such a competitive environment where weakness is um, always exploited by the other side. Um, that mental health walks that um, uh, sector with difficulty because both the politician, the staffer, and the journalists are not that sure around how to deal with uh, an issue when it becomes mental health. They are, I think, journalists are quite understandably cynical that poor performance from politicians might get um, uh, clouded by, oh, but maybe I was under some mental health pressure at the time. So they're a little bit um, dubious, I suspect, uh, around people referencing mental health when they come under pressure. But also I think journalists are conscious of the fact, um, you know, they know it occurs in their career. They know journalists who have suffered from it. Uh, and so there's a, you know, there's a, um, you know, there's a dis diffidence across all the players around how to deal with it when it's when it's real mm -hmm. and what is real and what is not, you know. So that's probably not a very clear answer, but I <laughs> think it's sort of what I reflect and see uh, in the political sector today. No, that's that's great. And so finally, what are Todd Muller's priorities now? Well, um, apart from more yoga, uh, as opposed to less um, and more walking as opposed to less uh, there's a couple of things one is um, you know obviously I've got a job to do here as the MP for as long as I have you know for the rest of the term uh, and you know I've got that to do um, reconnecting with the family has been important because I have put them through a huge amount of pressure and stress over the last year or so uh, being there for them uh, and just uh, reflecting around, you know, what's next uh, for me. Uh, but look, you know, I, I absolutely love being the MP for Bay of Plenty. It's a tremendous part of the world. My office is in Papama. My mum still lives in Tipuna. Um, you know, it's I've lived here for pretty much, you know, 48 of the 53 years I've been on this planet. Uh, and, you know, the city's trebled in size in that time. Uh, and I, you know, I love the community here. So, um, you know, there's still lots to do. I don't think anybody would begrudge you for that, especially that Papamoa lifestyle. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. It's not bad. Todd, thank you very much for, for sharing that journey with us and, and sharing your experiences with mental health. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that would have taken a lot from what you've said and especially your your openness that you've spoken about and how you're willing to, to continue to share your story in order to to help other people. So I just want to say thank you for, for taking the time to, to speak with us. Not a problem. And thank you, Sean, for uh, your interest in the subject and, you know, um, desire to give something like this a go. And, uh, you know, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully people will listen and you'll have a whole lot of uh, good guys to have a chat to. Hey, thanks for making it to the end. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe and share this podcast to your mates or across social media so we can get these conversations out there. Have a good one.